right, well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. Uh, just a quick plug. Next Sunday, we are starting a brand new summer series on the book of Psalms. And so for the months of June and July, we're going to hang out in that book together and talk about Psalms from all different categories, ones having to deal with character, integrity, Psalms dealing with worship, with what it looks like to wait on the Lord. We're going to talk about the presence of God, uh, the trust and confidence we can have in God. And so uh, this might be a series we do for summers to come as well. I mean, there's only 150 Psalms we can talk about. And so it might be one that we, we do for a little while. But again, that kicks off next Sunday. If you want to get a jump start on the series, we're going to start where the book starts. So go ahead and read Psalm 1. All right. That's what we'll talk about next Sunday and uh, just be in prayer that God would use this psalm in the life of, or uh, these psalms, I should say, in the life of our church in an incredible way. But today we have a series to finish. And so if you have a Bible with you, grab it. And I want you to go to Ephesians chapter one with me. Ephesians chapter one. Today we are in the third and final week of a short series called More. And this is a series that God really put on my heart during a recent prayer retreat day. And, and he showed me on that day that I needed to preach something this month to really prepare our church for our upcoming move. See, a lot of you in the room know that in this next season of church life, we are finally, finally, finally moving into our new property after only 16 months of waiting. We are finally moving in. And, and I know many of you are excited and I'm excited, but as I've shared the past couple of weeks, there are also some fears that live in me, Okay. Number one, I'm scared to think that after we move in, we might put expectations on a building that belonged to us, uh, that we might be those people who think, all right, you know, we built this great new space and, and now people are just going to see what we've built. So we don't really need to pursue people anymore. And listen, although I'm sure people are going to show up just to see the building, we have to remember that buildings don't reach people, people reach people. And so what we cannot do is shove the mission that Jesus has given to us off onto this structure of wood and stone. Uh, there's also a second fear, and it's this, that after we move in, we might settle in, that we might be those people that just kick our feet up and relax and get comfortable and believe and behave as if our work is done. And I just want to keep reminding us, and I'll continue to do so long after we move into that new building, that our work as a church is never done. Like as long as there are people outside of our walls who are far from God and don't know Jesus Christ, there is work to do, amen? And so I just need you to hear me. We're not moving to that new building to do less ministry. We're not moving into that new building to do less gatherings. And it's important that you hear me say that because again, I've heard some of y'all going, oh, I can't wait till we get there and we can just go back to two gatherings. The goal is not to stay at two gatherings. The goal is to do as many gatherings as we need to do to accommodate all the people that we're reaching. And so again, the goal is not to do less. The goal is to get there and to accomplish our mission in even greater ways, to reach more and more people who aren't with us yet. But as I've wrestled with those fears, I've, I've found myself in my private times of prayer just asking God, okay, God, how do we avoid falling into those traps? And what I believe God has shown me is this, that the only way to avoid them is by seeing him more clearly, seeking him more desperately, and experiencing him more fully. And that's what this series has been about. Uh, if you're new to Crosspoint, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at some prayers that were prayed by very godly men in the scriptures. These were men who saw God, sought after God, asked to experience God, 
And today we're gonna close the series out by looking at a third prayer, a prayer prayed by the Apostle Paul over this church in a city called Ephesus. And from his prayer, we start to see the importance and the need of experiencing God for who he is. Now, before we get into that, I wanna stop and acknowledge, I know some of you in this room are probably skeptical of our topic for today. And you're skeptical because you grew up like me. Right? You were taught and trained by certain people in your life to be highly suspicious of anything labeled spiritual experience. And the logic was this. Hey, your experiences can lie to you. And if you believe the lies of your experiences, then those lies can take you off course, both theologically and practically. And please hear me. I agree with that to a point. Okay, I do believe that spiritual experiences not based in the truths of God's word are highly dangerous, that they can take you off course. But I also believe, based on what I see in the scriptures, that truth-informed experiences are vital to our relationship with God. I mean, have you ever read this book for yourself? Like actually sat down and just opened and read it? This book is filled with story after story after story of men and women who experienced in incredible ways God in all of his fullness. And again, I just have to say to you, based on what I see here, I'm convinced that you and I need the same. And so let me just remind us in case we've forgotten, Christianity is at the end of the day about engaging in an eternal personal relationship with God, right? That's Christianity, uh, which is why it's so strange to me that at times you'll hear certain Christians delight in the fact that Christianity is not religion, it's about a relationship, only then in the next breath to downplay and even disapprove of experiencing that relationship. It's weird. I mean, we never do that in human relationships, right? Uh, For example, before I got married, nobody sat me down and said, okay, James, here's the deal. You're about to enter a lifelong relationship with this woman. And if you want that relationship to go really well, look, know about your wife, but don't really worry about knowing your wife. You know, study her, but don't savor her. No, the advice was just the opposite. People sat me down and said, look, bro, be a student of your wife, learn all you can know, but savor her as often as you can. And why? Because the reality is I can know all there is to know about my wife intellectually But if I don't experience my wife in a variety of ways, physically, emotionally, verbally, relationally, then our relationship will forever remain on a surface level. And you need to know today that the same is true with your relationship with God. You can know all there is to know about God intellectually. Like you could be the smartest person in this room when it comes to theology and the Bible, but if you never experience God for who he is, then your knowledge of God will only run so deep. You know, it's the difference between you sitting by the pool on a hot summer day and knowing that water is refreshing and diving in and actually experiencing the refreshment of that pool, right? In scenario one, you know what's true. In scenario two, you experience the truth. My prayer for our church is this, that we would be a people always experiencing what is true about God, that we'd never be content sitting on the side of the theological pool, only knowing about him, but that our desire would be to dive into the depths of who he is in order to gain a greater knowledge of him. And so the question is, how do we do that? 
Well, that's the question Paul answers for us in Ephesians chapter one. So if your Bibles are open, we're gonna dive in and get to work. We're gonna pick up and start reading in verse 15 together. And if you don't have a Bible with you, this will be on the screens. But here's what Paul prays. He starts off by telling the church what he prays. Here's what he says. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, I wanna stop here and talk for a few minutes, okay? Uh, If you go back and read the first 14 verses that appear before these verses, and you need to do that, all right? So make a note and just sometime this week, go back and read Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14. When you read those verses, you find the Apostle Paul describing in great detail the extraordinary links to which God went to save us, his people. And he uses language like this. God chose us before the foundation of the world. Uh, God predestined us. Big scary word for some of us. Doesn't need to be a big scary word. Don't worry about it. It's a beautiful word. God predestined us as sons and daughters for adoption into his family. He gave us the forgiveness of sins, redemption through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He tells us that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing and given us an inheritance like good loving fathers often give their kids. And then he goes on in verse 13 to tell these Christians at Ephesus, by the way, when you put your faith in Jesus and God saved you, he also gave you the Holy Spirit as a seal. So in other words, you you trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, and the God of the universe put his own spirit inside of your body to mark you or to identify you as one of his own. And just a quick side note here before we keep going, uh, if you know Jesus Christ today, if you've put your faith in him as Savior and Lord, these first 14 verses of Ephesians 1 serve as a great reminder that you had absolutely nothing to do with your salvation. That deserved a better amen, 10 o'clock. Come on. Right? Nothing. To, look, you didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. You didn't help God out in any way. No, God is the one who initiated. He's the one who accomplished. He gifted. He is the one that sustains. All the more reason for you to be grateful for the grace of God today. Amen? And so look, after Paul describes that, he then goes on in verse 15 to say what we just read. Hey, for this reason. Because I've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ, because I've heard of your love toward all the saints, I never stop thanking God for you. Now, with that statement, Paul's getting at a couple of key things that I want to point out for us, all right? These matter. Uh, Number one, when Paul mentions their faith in Jesus Christ, he's referring to more than their decision to believe. So this was not Paul saying, hey, I thank God that you prayed a prayer to stay out of hell. Like, that's important, but that's not what he's getting at. Um, He's saying, I thank God that you are living your lives as committed disciples of Jesus Christ. And look, at the end of the day, that's the goal of our faith, right? Christianity has never been solely about making decisions, but making disciples. And so you and I can't stop with a simple decision to believe in Jesus. After we make that decision, we then strive by the grace of God and the power of God to follow faithfully after him. And Paul's celebrating, hey, you're getting that right. But then he goes on and and he mentions their love for the saints. And when he mentions their love for the saints, look, he's not simply referring to an emotion they felt, but to an action they were taking. And it's so important that you get this because in our culture today, we have done a serious injustice to the concept and idea of love, right? In our culture, we've turned love into nothing more than a feeling when in fact, love is an act of the will, 
And I'll give you a beautiful picture of this. Sorry, last uh, Saturday, I did a wedding for a couple in our church. And before the ceremony started, I was talking to the father of the bride and he shared with me that, that he and his wife had been married for 49 years. How incredible is that? And so, because you don't hear a lot of those stories anymore, I went, dude, that's amazing. Tell me about that. Like, how have you made it 49 years? And here was his answer. He says, my wife and I choose to love each other every single day, even when we don't feel like it. And he was honest enough to tell me, there are plenty of days where we don't feel like it, but we just do it anyway, all right? That's how we've made it. And, and look, my new friend understood something that a lot of people miss. That love is not an emotion, it's a decision. It's not something that you feel, it is something that you do. And here's Paul celebrating this church going, hey, I see you. I want you to know, I see you doing love really, really well. And doing love well, by the way, according to the scriptures, it is a mark of spiritual maturity. And so if you wanna know how spiritually mature you are, uh, don't check your church attendance records. Don't look at all the Bible verses you know. Uh, don't, don't tell me about how deep your theology and doctrine is. You wanna know how mature you are as a Christian? Look at how well you love people, especially how well you love people who are different from you. Paul's praising this church because they're getting this stuff right, but, but his prayer doesn't stop with thanksgiving. He actually goes on and he says, I also remember you in my prayers. So not only uh, do I thank God for you, but I'm always asking God to do some things in you. And he starts telling the church what he's asking for in the next verses. Look at this, verse 17. He goes on and, and he says, I'm asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Now again, I wanna stop here and talk and point some things out, all right? Uh, the first thing I want you to take notice of is that word know in verse 18. If you write in your Bibles, I would say underline that, highlight it, circle it, really important word, all right? That word know in verse 18, it comes from a Greek word that is used to describe experiential knowledge. And just to give you perspective on what I mean, it's the same Greek word used in the Bible to describe sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. If you wanna picture that, go read Matthew chapter one. In Matthew one, we read about the birth of Jesus Christ and toward the end of that chapter, in verse 25, it's talking about Joseph and Mary, his parents. And we read there that Joseph knew her not until after Jesus was born. And I think you're smart enough to figure out what that means, right? He knew her not. Again, my point is this. When Paul prays for this church, he's not simply praying that they would know more about God, He's praying that they would gain a very real, tangible, practical, and even experiential knowledge of him. And there are three things that he prays they experience, and I'll show them to you. If you're taking notes, this is stuff you wanna write down. Number one is the hope of God. The hope of God. In our culture, hope, and, and you guys already know this, but hope is often equated with nothing more than imaginary wishful thinking. Like when people use that word hope, here's how it often sounds. Oh, well, uh, I hope I get that job I applied for. Hope my situation turns around. 
Hope that person says yes. Hope I get into the college I wanna get into, right? And so on. Look, I need you to know today, that is not the hope Paul's praying for. He's not praying that, that this church would walk through life with blind optimism. No, he's praying that they would experience biblical hope. So what is biblical hope? Look, biblical hope is hope that comes from knowing that God is present, that God is powerful, that he is sovereign, that all of his promises are good and true and will come to pass. Biblical hope, don't miss this, biblical hope is hope that comes from knowing the end of the story. You see, the good news for us as Christians is we know the end of the story, don't we? And the end of the story is this, that one day our glorious resurrected Savior Jesus Christ is coming back. And on that day when he returns, he will set up his eternal kingdom. He will crush every single one of his enemies. Uh, Every wrong will be righted. Every injustice will be undone. Sin and all of its consequences will be no more. And you and I as the people of God will rule and reign with Christ forever in brand new resurrected bodies. Bodies that never suffer, never feel pain, never die. If you know Jesus, look at me, that's what waits on you. That is your future, my friend. And when you know that's what waits on you in the future, regardless of how bad life might get in the present, you can always live with hope. There is never a reason to fret because we know that in the end, our God wins. And this is what Paul's praying for, that these people wouldn't just know those truths on an intellectual level, but that they would experience those truths about hope in everyday life. Number two, he prays that they experience the inheritance of God. The inheritance of God. This is amazing to me. Uh, Earlier, I just touched briefly on the fact that when you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, God gives us an inheritance, namely eternal life. But Paul is teaching here that God himself also has an inheritance. And do you know what his inheritance is? If you look back at the text, you can probably guess it. His inheritance is his saints, his people. Paul says that if you know Jesus Christ today, that God sees you as part of his great wealth. And I know that that for some of you, really hard to believe that, isn't it? As a guy who grew up in church, really hard for me to believe for a long, long time. Some of you today, you're like me. Like when you look at your life, all you see is sin, failure, mistakes, shortcomings. You look at your past and and you just start examining all the things you've gotten wrong. Even in your present, the only thing that you can set your mind on are, are all those ways that you struggle to be the person that God wants you to be today. And so you're convinced right now that God disapproves, that he's displeased, that he's angry, that he's telling you do better, try harder. And so what you're doing is, is you're doing everything in your power that you can to really make up to God for all the things you're getting and have gotten wrong. And it's crushing you. And I just need you to know today that that's not how God sees you. Like the thought for for some of you of of being valued by God, treasured by him, uh, part of his great wealth, a, a glorious inheritance in his family, like impossible for you to comprehend. But here's what I'd say to you if you struggle with that. You have to remember that the reason God sees you that way It's not because of you, it's because of what Jesus has done for you. This is the beautiful news of the gospel, my friends, that when Jesus Christ went to that cross 2,000 years ago, he knew every single sin in your life he was dying for. You know, there's not a single thing you do on a daily basis that catches him by surprise. 
Like you never sin and, and Jesus respond by going, oh, if, I, if I'd have known he was gonna do that, I would have never died for him, you know? That's not how it works. No, Jesus knew what sins in your life he was laying his life down for and he still went to the cross and he paid the penalty that every single one of your sins required so that by your faith in him, he could gift you the very righteousness that is his. And he did that as Colossians 1.22 teaches so that he himself could present you before God the Father as a holy, blameless, righteous person even though you're none of those things. Isn't that unbelievable? That God, if you know Christ, look, that God no longer deals with you on the basis of your sin, but he deals with you on the basis of what Jesus did to pay for your sin. That the God of the universe, if you are in Christ today, does not see you as you have been. He doesn't see you as you are. He sees you as you will be on that day that you step into the eternal kingdom of God and your sin is no more. And again, some of us, we need to believe that. But you can't just experience those truths by believing them. You need the help of God. And, and that's what Paul's praying for, that, that these people wouldn't just know that they are part of God's inheritance intellectually, but that they would experience the truths of that reality every day of their lives. And then number three, Paul prays that they would experience the power of God. The power of God. Now, Paul does something interesting in the text when he talks about the power of God. Uh, instead of just going, I pray you experience his power. He piles up all these different words to really make a point about the power of God. And, and just look back at the text if your Bibles are still open. Here's what he says again um, in verse 19. I pray that you experience the immeasurable greatness of his power according to the working of his great might. What's he doing here? He's making a simple point. Hey, God is really, really, really powerful and all of his power is available to you. And then he goes on in the next verses to describe that power in detail. Read this with me in verse 20. He says, the power I'm talking about is the same power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here's what Paul's doing in these few verses. Three things. Number one, he's describing God's power in terms of Jesus's resurrection. But he says to this church, the power that I want you to experience is the same power that was at work when God himself raised Jesus Christ up from the dead. It's the same power that allowed Jesus to walk out of that grave three days after the cross, conquering sin, death, and hell forever. Secondly, he describes God's power in terms of Jesus's ascension. He said, the power I'm praying you experience, it's the same power that was at work when 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended back to heaven and took a seat at the right hand of God. And that seat, by the way, it's so important that you hear this, that seat signifies authority. And here's the picture that right now as we're seated in this room, what's the date today? It's like May 27th or something like that, something like that. Uh, did I get that right? The 20th? Okay, May 27th, 2018, that Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, is seated on the throne of heaven, ruling and reigning as king. He is sovereign. He is in control. There is nothing that he cannot do. 
And Paul is making the point that the same power that belongs to the ascended Jesus is available to you and me. And then thirdly, thirdly, Paul describes God's power in terms of Jesus's dominion. Uh, This is beautiful. He reminds us in this prayer that Jesus Christ, like every enemy of God, including Satan and his demons, have been our being and will one day ultimately be brought under the feet of Jesus Christ. Psalm 110 says it best that the enemies of God will be the footstool of Jesus Christ. You ever been in the floor like at your house and one of your punk kids or you know, family, they just prop their feet up on you? you ever, has that ever happened to you? It's annoying, isn't it? That's the imagery here. That King Jesus, there's coming a day, and this is already happening, by the way, but there is coming a day when ultimately Jesus Christ will prop his feet up on his enemies to their shame and detriment. It's the imagery, look, that we sang about earlier in that song, what a beautiful name. Some of y'all don't even know what you were singing. I'm gonna tell you what you were singing, you ready? When you started declaring, Jesus, you have no rival, you have no equal, God, now and forever you reign. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the name above all names. Do you know what you were saying? You were saying, Jesus, your enemies have nothing on you. Like no one and no one is above you. Everything and everyone is beneath you. Jesus, all dominion and all authority is yours. And again, according to Paul, the same dominion that belongs to the resurrected Jesus is available to us, his church and his body today. And so the question is, how in the world do we experience God in those ways? How do we experience the hope of God and the inheritance of God and the power of God? Well, Paul answers that question for us in the middle of the text. I don't know if you caught this, but I skipped over talking about a couple of verses. I did it on purpose because I wanted to wait till the end to talk about them, all right? So I want you to go back to the middle of the text with me, and I want to show you these verses. Verse 17, Paul says here, I ask that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. I love this. Paul begins here by telling this Ephesian church exactly who he's praying to. He says, I just wanna let you know, when I thank God for you and when I ask God to do things in you, I am praying to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the same God that Jesus himself acknowledged, worshiped, and prayed to. The the same God, by the way, who is the father of glory. All glory, all majesty, all splendor belongs to him. Paul's saying, I'm asking that God, here it is, that he would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, who is the spirit of wisdom and revelation? It's the Holy Spirit. Paul's talking here about the Holy Spirit. But he's not praying that God would give the spirit himself to these people because as we just read in verse 13, God had already done that. Um, When they put their faith in Jesus Christ, God gave them the Holy Spirit as a seal. They had the spirit. They were already followers of Jesus Christ. What Paul's praying for is that these people would receive and realize the very things that the spirit wants to give them, namely wisdom, the practical knowledge of how to live as the people of God, and revelation, insight into the character of God along with all of his plans and purposes. And why is Paul praying for this? Well, the answer is right there in the back half of verse 17. And, and I love how the NIV translates it because it's, it's most clear there. I feel like the NIV really gets it right. 
Paul says, I'm praying that the Spirit of God would give you wisdom and revelation, look, so that you may know him better. That's the key. I'm asking God by his spirit to give you these things so that you can gain a greater experiential knowledge of who he is. This is the prayer. And then he really drives this point home in the beginning of verse 18 using this great little metaphor. He says, I'm also asking that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened. In this culture that Paul was writing to, the heart was viewed as the center of a person's entire being. It was basically the command center, if you will, for a person's emotions, their personalities, their mental capabilities, their decision-making abilities, and so on. And so Paul's praying here. Here's the picture. Paul's praying that the Holy Spirit of God would literally shine a light into that command center, not so they simply know more about God, but so that they experience God uh, for more uh, or more experience more of God, excuse me, more of God for who he is in all of his fullness. And this brings me to the big point and idea of today's message. And, and this is the point Paul's getting at here. If you take a notes, write it down and we'll unpack it. The person who experiences God fully knows the spirit of God intimately. This is what Paul wants us to see. That the person who experiences God fully knows the spirit of God Intimately, you see, here's the reality today, and some of you really need to hear this. You cannot behave your way into experiencing God. Let me just say that again, because I think some of you really need to hear it. You, you cannot behave your way into experiencing God, which is why some of you in this room are probably so frustrated in your Christian life right now, because you feel like you're behaving in all the right ways. And I'm, and I'm coming to church and, and I'm giving some money and I'm, I'm like serving on a team. I even did the small group thing and it's weird and it's awkward. And, but I did it anyway because you guys kept telling me I needed to do it. So I feel like I'm doing all the right things, yet I'm not experiencing God in the ways that I, I hoped I would experience God. James, why is that? Well, it's simple. Because experiencing God is not a behavior issue. It's a heart issue. Right? To really experience him you need the Holy Spirit of God to do some things in your heart. You need him to give you wisdom, to give you revelation, to open the eyes of your heart, to see God for who he is. But look, the Holy Spirit can't do those things in you unless you're walking intimately in relationship with him each day. And you might be wondering, well, James, how do I do that? Uh, right before this series, we just did a five-week series on the Holy Spirit. And so if you need help understanding how to walk in intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit, go back and watch or listen to that series. I, I really think it would be helpful for you. But I wanna illustrate, if I can, what I'm trying to get at here in case you're still confused and, and maybe this will really put it in perspective for you. Uh, maybe you're one of those people in the room who's trying hard to get in shape right now. You know, it's that time of year. Summer is here, basically upon us. And so this is the time of year where everybody gets real serious. I'm gonna eat right and I'm gonna exercise. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to run every day. And so maybe you're one of those people and you have a really simple goal. I just want to see my abs. Like I don't even to see all of them. If I can just see like one and a half of them, that would be, I know they're under there. I just want to see them again. Right? So maybe that's your goal. Look, you know this, but you can perform all the physical activity you want. Go to the gym every day, run every day. But if your activity is not accompanied by proper nutrition, 
you'll never reach your goal. Because as the old saying goes, abs are made in the kitchen, amen? And I know some of y'all don't wanna hear that right now. It's like really convicting for you. But, but in the same way, listen, in the same way, religious activity not accompanied by intimacy with the Holy Spirit, it fails to serve its purpose. You see, if you are that person who does all the right things and you behave in all the right ways, but you're not walking with him, you'll probably know a lot about God, but you're always gonna have a hard time experiencing him. But on the other hand, listen, on the other hand, if you're that person who gets out of bed every day and you walk in intimate relationship with the very spirit of God that lives in you, and by the way, that's why the spirit of God lives in you, so that you can walk in relationship with him and and have the power that you need to live as the person Jesus saved you to be. If you get out of bed and walk with him because your desire is simply this, I just wanna know God more. It's like all I want, I just wanna know him in deeper ways and I want him to change me in greater ways to make me more and more like Jesus, guess what's gonna happen? The Holy Spirit's gonna start doing these things in you that Paul prays for. He's gonna use all of your activity to shine a light into your heart. He's gonna take the word of God and and your time with other people, your times in, in prayer. He's gonna use times like these where we come together as the church and we sing and we worship and we pray and we sit under the teaching of God's word He's gonna take all those things, look, to reveal God to you, to show you the plans and purposes of God for your life. He's gonna use those things to impart wisdom into you so that you can live rightly as a son or daughter of God. And can I tell you what happens when that happens? When the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see who God is and he grows your desire to seek God desperately, here's the end result, you ready? you begin to experience God in all of his fullness. The hope of God isn't something that you just know about. It's something that you know. The inheritance of God isn't something that you can articulate. It is something that you delight in every single day. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. I'm a prized possession in the hands of the king of the universe. The power of God is not something that you just waste a lot of air talking about but it's something that lives in you and moves through you each and every day of your life. Look, as we close, I'll just tell you this. Experiencing God in this way, it's what I pray for over my own life all the time these days. There was a season in my life years ago when my only concern was knowing more about God. And and I don't wanna downplay knowing about God because knowing about God is important. Like you need to have sound doctrine. You need to have strong theology. But I'll just tell you, if your theology stops with knowing about God, your theology's broken. You have bad theology if it's just about knowing about him. And so I, I lived there for a long time. I'm gonna tell you, my, my main concern for my life today is this, that when I stand up here and preach, uh, when I interact with you off this platform, when I sit down in meetings with you, when I rub shoulders with strangers in our community, that people walk away from their interactions with me and they don't say, oh, that's a man who knows a lot about God. My prayer is that people walk away and they say, that is a man who knows God. He's been in his presence. He's spent time hearing his voice. That's a man who walks with God each and every day. And can I just tell you, that's my prayer for our church. 
especially as we head into this next season of, of change where we could be so distracted by so many things. I just pray that we'd be those people, that when we interact with others, that when we speak truth and encouragement into people's lives, when, when we just set out to love people well, that they'd walk away from us and go, wow, those people at Crosspoint know the God of the universe. And I think some of you, that's your desire today. Some of you wanna break free of this place where you find yourself. And the desire and cry of your heart is yes and amen. I just wanna know God more. And so if that's where you are, I just want us to pray together right now and ask the Holy Spirit of God to help us with that. So will you join me just all over the room? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And if that truly is the desire of your heart, why don't you just begin telling that to God? Just say it. God, I just wanna know you more. God, I don't just wanna have knowledge about you. I wanna have a knowledge of you. God, I wanna experience in everyday life the things we've talked about today. Your hope, the the fact that I am included in your inheritance. God, I wanna experience your power, power that puts your enemies to shame. And so God, I'm, I'm praying right now, just say this to him, I'm praying right now that your Holy Spirit that lives in me would give me wisdom would give me revelation, that he would shine a light into the inner parts of who I am so that the eyes of my heart would be enlightened, that I might see you and, and desire to know you more. Father, I pray for all of us sitting in this room right now, including myself. God, I even pray for those people in this room right now God, who are struggling to desire what we've talked about today. God, overwhelm them with your grace. Overwhelm them with your beauty, with your goodness. And bring them to a place, God, where their hearts are bowed before you. But God, for my brothers and sisters right now who are just crying out, God, I wanna know you more, I wanna know you more. Would you move in their lives? in ways that only you can. God, give us everything that we need each day by the power of your spirit. God, to walk as people whose lives are marked by you. God, we know that we need your help to get this right and so we're laying our lives before you today and just saying, God, do whatever you need to do in us to bring us to this place where we just know you more. God, we love you so much and we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And all God's people said, amen.